Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to the Nonprofit Nation podcast. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. And today we're going to talk about long-term planning, strategic planning, and all the things related to that. And I have my very special guest, Chirian Koshi, with me today. Chirian is a certified fundraising executive. That's the CFRE label, chartered advisor in philanthropy, an AFP master trainer. He spent over 25 years in nonprofits, mostly as a fundraiser. And right now, Chirian is a nonprofit investment consultant and principal at Endowment Partners, which is an investment management firm that solely focuses on nonprofits, foundations, and endowments. He currently serves on the global board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and is the chair of the Iowa Commission on Volunteer Service as well as eight other boards and commissions. And he has three kids and travels all the time. So I'm not sure how you do it. Chirian, do you sleep? I don't sleep a lot. That is for sure the case. But who does? You don't sleep a lot, do you? <laughs> I two do. Kids and, all of, and your world domination work? like <laughs> People think that I don't sleep, but I actually try to. I try to sleep at least seven or eight hours a night. Can you believe it? I read the Ariana Huffington book and it kind of changed my perspective on sleep. And then also when I had COVID, we were just talking about this. I found that I desperately need sleep more than ever. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm tired at 9 p.m. going to bed. So I want to hear about how you got into nonprofit work and sort of a little bit about what you're doing now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my first job was at the Minnesota Zoo but not in fundraising. It just happened to be a nonprofit. I was a food service person. So I did that very early on. And then right out of high school, I started doing canvassing work. So if you have listeners who are in the UK, they call them chuggers there, which is, I think, a cooler name. But we went around neighborhoods and asked people for money for the Sierra Club or a human rights campaign or these other things that we worked at. And then I went out east and did that work as the state director out in Boston and in Connecticut for that work and and really got bit by the bug of like this nonprofit thing is really interesting. So fast forward, kept working in nonprofits in different roles and got into really fundraising as a big piece of what I did and as the development director for kind of small uh, and then midsize and even sort of larger organizations to build out systems and strategies and did that all the way through the pandemic and I guess we're still in the pandemic, but as the last organization I was in started emerging and and was very strong, I had the opportunity to, as you mentioned, I'm on a bunch of different boards. We had some excess capital on one of those boards and we're trying to figure out where to 
put it because there was really no place to put it that made sense. And I got connected with this group, Endowment Partners. It's a women-owned firm, which is less than 2% of all wealth management firms in the US. And they were really smart about adapting techniques to nonprofits, started talking to them a lot. We invested with them and then started some conversations. They were like, hey, would you like to, is this something you would like to do? And I was like, yes, this would be awesome. So I get to keep working with all of my nonprofit friends. I get to keep supporting consultants that are my friends because we do the investment management side. And if they don't have a consultant, we can uh, help them with that. Or I can be like, hey, have you met my friend Julia? So it's all good stuff. And and I love being part of it and uh, stretching a kind of new muscle for me. I think that's so important. And I love that you have the board and commission perspective now, especially having been on the front lines in the trenches as a fundraiser. And you can bring that perspective. I'm not sure if a lot of board members have that perspective. Oh, good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know that my wife agrees with the eight board missions <laughs> and three kids <laughs> all in the mix component. A lot, uh, of, lot of Zoom meetings at 7 p.m., I would imagine. Yes, yes. Yeah, yesterday the kids are like, where are you going today? I'm like, uh, City Hall today. I serve on the school board here, so I sympathize. Oh, I feel for you. Yeah, I sympathize. A lot of meetings, a lot of... You know, where are you going today? What What's happening today? Like, are you going to be home for dinner? Because now we meet in person, actually. We've been meeting in person for a while. So it is a lot of, a lot of missed dinners, but it's worth it because we're making change. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about long-term planning, which unfortunately I think is something that seems foreign or unattainable to many nonprofits. And what I want to ask is, Is long-term planning relevant now, especially with what we've seen in the past two, two and a half years, you know, where our best laid plans kind of went out the window? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously the answer is yes, and even, uh, even better than that, I think it's more important now than it ever was before. So I want to separate first and foremost the fact that we are currently living through all these things that are truly tragic, right? I mean, first and foremost, the pandemic and loss of life and people's illnesses and whatnot. But then you compound that with the economy and inflation and and how that affects people's day-to-day lives. And then, of course, this terrible war in Ukraine and the loss of life and loss of security and stability there in the world. And, And of course, that impacts them significantly and everyone else as well. We are living in these times where it can feel paralyzing. And I think that's what a lot of nonprofits here in the United States and all over the world are feeling and continue to feel is we made these plans and none of our plans make any sense anymore. I mean, how do we how do we even kind of think through what happens tomorrow, much less three, four, five, ten years from now? But, you know, first and foremost, we have to take care of ourselves and our staff and our beneficiaries as best we can during this time. But it can be very tempting to put our heads down and focus only on that. And what becomes very scary, particularly for small and mid-sized organizations, is you get sucked into essentially playing whack-a-mole, like you know, dealing with these immediate problems, and you never kind of lift your gaze to the horizon to see there's a longer game at play. And that's why I think long-term planning is so, so important, even in the midst or especially in the midst of tragedy and disaster to say like, how do we 
first and foremost, make sure that this never happens again? How do we make sure that we can continue to do the good work that we know is so important, despite the environmental circumstances that will come in the future? So I know this is really, really hard to say or even think about, but this will not be the last pandemic. It will certainly not be the last recession slash bear market. It will not be the last war that we face. So it's really important on leaders to really think about what's that long-term plan and how do we address that? But also to have the mindset to say, with that long-term plan, we know that the day-to-day will change maybe a lot, but we've got to keep our eyes focused on what we need to accomplish in the long term to be able to structure our plans in a way that help us accommodate what we need in the short term, right? So do we have the people? Do we have the resources? Do we have the other infrastructure to make sure that we can continue to deliver on the services that we do? Exactly. And I know that in the business world, which I'm not really in the business world, (laughs) but I know that there is an extreme focus on short-term gains, cutting costs, sort of shareholder gains, Do you feel like the nonprofit sector, there's too much of a focus on short-term gains versus long-term investments and planning? And how can we get away from this? What are some steps we can take? Absolutely. And and I want to be very careful and thoughtful about the circumstances of the small and nonprofit, uh, small and mid-sized nonprofits that, you know, I'm on the board of and that I work with a lot. There is absolutely this sort of overwhelming need that organizations are facing or mitigating, right? You know, whether it's homelessness or hunger or disease, you know, all of those type of frontline issues that are so important. I love the analogy that you used about business because a lot of small and mid-sized businesses, they fail within the first five years. And that's because they get so worked into that short-term mentality that they end up making poorer decisions. And the analogy that I would use is there are people that I know that live paycheck to paycheck. And because of that, they don't have the ability. It's not because they lack the desire or the knowledge, but they don't have the ability to make purchases in their individual lives that would enable them to grow and sustain themselves. The simple example is, you know, the pandemic happens and everyone's buying toilet paper for dollars or, you know, hoarding resources, whether it's the grocery store or whatever, and that does a disservice to them, right? You're spending more money on a smaller item. Whereas like if you went to Costco or Sam's Club or something like that, you could get a lot more toilet paper for a lot cheaper price per unit. But it also does a disservice to the community because we, you know, when everybody's hoarding those limited set of goods, then not everyone can take advantage of them. And I don't mean that in terms of donations. I just mean that in terms of like, how are we thinking about collaboration? How are we thinking about working together to provide those benefits to the people that need them? So when it comes to the short term thinking, this ultimately has so much to do with who we are as people, right? We are, by and large, short-term thinkers all the time in our lives. There's this great study about kids and them like having... The oh, the marshmallow? Yes. Or the cookie? Yeah, it's, it's marshmallow, yeah. I don't know that it stands up to the test of time, but I've definitely placed marshmallows in front of my kids to see if this will work. And I bet they all 
do think something differently. They do. Yeah. Each kid tends to think differently, but I mean, kids love marshmallows. So if they're, so for those of you who don't know the marshmallow study, the idea is you put a marshmallow in front of a kid or they did. And they said, you can either have this marshmallow now or two marshmallows in 10 minutes. And the kids that waited that had that patience, the argument was that they had a greater kind of long-term potential because they had this understanding of, you know, what they could get in the long term. And whether that study is true or valid or not is not necessarily the point. There is an absolute behavioral science around presentism, our our bias towards things that are happening in the short term versus things that are happening in the long term. We can't get into that today, or that would be a whole other podcast, I guess. Right. Give us some books to read on that after. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are lots of great resources out there on that stuff. And you can, you know, Google short-term bias, but the fun part, I think, or the the challenging part, I guess, is that nonprofits, because they're run by people, um, they have that short term bias. You know, what do we do this year? And uh, a specific example is, you know, when it comes to fundraising, I had this happen to me all the time. They're like, "How much money are we going to raise this year?" Well, those donors may not be ready to give until thirteen months from now or sixteen months from now. So, we definitely need to to start pulling apart these artificial timelines and start thinking about. What does it mean to do good in whatever the appropriate amount of time is? Because a lot of the work that we do is messy and it doesn't have a fixed timeline. And I guess, Julia, the other thing that some nonprofits struggle with is like a lot of them want to work themselves out of a job. Like we don't want to continue to do this work far into the future. And I think that's a laudable goal. I think it's good to kind of think that way in some form. but maybe this is the like realist in me coming out, but I feel like there's some nonprofits like arts and culture nonprofits, which will always need to be there. We always need to, there's no good economic reason to produce new stories and new plays and new music and things like that. You've got to have philanthropy for that, but even things like hunger and homelessness, maybe we can minimize the time that people spend in hunger or homelessness, but I don't think we'll ever be able to eliminate them. Star Trek tells us we, we figured it out, but yes, I <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that's you know going to be true for us. At least, probably not in my lifetime, unless something dramatically different changes. But I think there's always going to be need a need for nonprofits to do important work that governments won't do or businesses won't do. So we got to be mindful of how that works out. There are no nonprofits in Star Trek: The Next Generation. I didn't think about that, but yes, exactly. That's the optimal future. And I haven't watched the new season of Picard, but I don't know if it's... Oh, yeah. I is it good? I, no, I just saw the trailer. I haven't started yet. So that's the future we aspire to, but I agree with you. The realist in me says, you know, when people say we want to work ourselves out of a job, or it's usually not the nonprofits that say that. It's donors or reporters or the general media or or people that have never worked in nonprofits say, don't you want to work yourself out of a job? And to me, having worked in domestic violence and rape crisis and poverty eradication and racial equity, you think the work is never going to be done. But like you said, I think it could be done in different ways. And maybe the time, there could be different approaches. But exactly like you said, nonprofits will always be there to kind of fill in the fill in the blanks and do the work that businesses and government either won't do or can't do. 
So I think we will always be here. But so I was looking at your blog and what I found really interesting was that you do have a lot of actual solutions in your blog. So you don't just write about, here's the problem and what can we do about it? And I love that. So it's really striking to see a blog that actually offers solutions. And I'm a blogger too, so I get into that as well. But you wrote that in one of your posts that was about striking the balance between urgent need and long-term solutions, that we need a what you call a Ulysses Pact to ensure foundations and fundraising staff are still around to help future generations through their emergencies. So can you tell me a little bit about this idea? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this comes from my work in environmental justice, where, you know, this sort of next generation concept or future generations concept is is obviously real, more prevalent, I think. But I think it applies to all organizations, or almost all organizations. I mean, maybe it's possible that we, like I'm a Rotarian, I'm on the board of Rotary, and we're all about like ending polio. I have a cousin who has polio and, and we've, we've very much minimized it, but it still technically exists, right? There are still a few people that have it. And so the Ulysses Pact is this kind of concept from ancient time where like our own desire is to run into danger, right? Like our, our, we're hardwired into making essentially bad decisions. But Ulysses, knowing that that was going to be the case, told his shipmates to bind him to the mast so that when he heard the siren call, he would he could hear the siren call, but he wouldn't make the bad decision. And I think that's what we really need to think about as nonprofits is how do we bind ourselves to the fact that there will be future generations potentially of, of people who who need help? And how do we make sure that we individually can work in that space and, and make sure that we are the best contributors as possible. And that are that's things like, you know, mental health and self-care and all the things that like Ian Adair talks about. And it's also all the issues about burnout and turnover in organizations that so many other people talk about as well. So that's one component of it. But then, you know, what does it look like to have a place in our discussions that is future focused? So one of the recommendations that I've given before is having someone at the table who just puts on the hat of saying, I'm the future-focused person. I'm the person who's going to be asking the question of, what does this mean five years from now or 50 years from now? And when you designate a person, it doesn't have to be the same person all the time, but they're wearing that hat in these strategic planning conversations so that you sort of force the perspective and then you shift to the conversation to saying, well, that doesn't make sense, or you know, we don't have to worry about that today, but actually forcing the discussion to grapple with the issue and to at least acknowledge that that issue exists. And what we found you know, in actual planning discussions is that it's really helpful to have that perspective at the table, but it's not something that most strategic planning conversations include. It makes a big difference in, in the shape and flow of the conversation. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm here to tell you that this podcast episode is sponsored by my newest free training, Social Media in 20 Minutes Per Day. This is where I give you my exact framework and process to schedule and organize your time so that social media does not take over your entire day and to-do list. Watch the replay for free at Social Media in 20, that's 20, the numbers 
www.thisisthefeminineconnection.com. And be sure to tag me on social to let me know what you think. That's socialmediaand20.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Do you think that foundations more than a traditional like social service nonprofit does have long-term planning on the forefront? I think some do. I mean, I think, you know, with any type of organization, whether it's a nonprofit or a foundation, the different people and the different makeup of the organization are, are very different. I am a proponent of the fact that foundations, A, should distribute more money than they're currently distributing based upon the existing need. But foundations are uniquely situated to be funders and have the capacity to do things that nonprofits can't necessarily do. So understanding that they are different and potentially have a different time horizon. I mean, some of them sunset, but they have the ability to look long-term and be able to fund things long-term. So for example, if you have a $10 million foundation, which a lot of foundations are around that kind of amount, if they took that $10 million and dropped it on an organization that addressed homelessness in Massachusetts, for example, that would only go so far. And then 10 years from now, what do we do with that foundation doesn't exist anymore, but the problem still exists. So how do we address that? And there are very few entities like Mackenzie Scott or, you know, who can continue to, to drop those kinds of dollars. So life changing, game changing kinds of dollars, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're so grateful for the work that she's doing, but then the neat thing is the way that she's managing her assets, she can continue to do that, right? Yes, exactly, because she's planned long-term. Yeah, precisely. So if we have 100 Mackenzie Scotts out there, imagine the type of solutions that we can have because that source of revenue for the nonprofit incubator who's innovating and, and addressing not I don't want to get too much into like you have to do this cool new fancy thing as much as like organizations that are on the ground dealing with circumstances that are near and proximate to them right like those are issues that need funding and they need those that funding in the long term so how do we work together I wrote this piece for the Center for effective philanthropy as well like we need to work together to figure out how to make this balance make sense so that Nonprofits get the dollars that they need today, but they also know that there's a long-term funding piece so that they can continue to do that good work without having to worry about laying off staff or not being able to be competitive in terms of salaries and benefits and programming to serve their beneficiaries. So it's all this very complicated thing that a lot of times on Twitter, you know, gets boiled down into something that nobody really agrees with and doesn't really make sense. You know, so that's sort of the point is we really need to think long and hard. And and I don't think there are easy solutions to any of it. I think, honestly, solution a solutions-based framework is probably my own Western bias coming into play. Like, there's a problem, solution, and here's the neat, tidy bow. And that's probably not the right answer. Well, speaking of short-termism, which is something that you also talk about in this blog post, something you said just really made me think about how funding in the sector works. And I remember being a grant writer and a development director and struggling to get grants that were more than one year. And foundations would say, well, you have to be sustainable. Well, okay, how can we be sustainable in just one year? And yes, we need to look for other funding sources, but 
these needs are always going to be here, or at least they, hopefully we will reduce them, but they're always going to be here. So how do we make foundations, funders, corporate sponsors understand that these are long-term investments, if you will? Honestly, Julie, if I had the answer to that, I would be like, if we did, we would, we would own the world, right? Let's figure out the answer to that. And then we will like, we'll have books and, you know, we can get you all the things I'd start with the fact. So this comes back to a CEP blog I wrote. I think the primary element is shifting the mindset of foundations and even boards. So one of the reasons why I'm on a lot of boards is because I think it's really important to shift the mindset of boards. Because a lot of times these people come from a corporate background, a business background, they've made some money, they want to do good, hopefully, kind of imputing a culture of philanthropy upon a lot of these these folks. I think for a lot of people, there's good intention, but they come from the intentionality of leveraging the least amount of capital for the most amount of gains. And that mentality is problematic when it comes to true, you know, social impact work, where it isn't inexpensive to do this work. It isn't something that truly needs to be aligned with efficiency and ultimately laying out the least amount of capital to do the most amount of of work and and that scalability complex. I think, again, Mark Pittman and I wrote wrote a journal article on this, and hopefully it'll get published soon, where there's truly an influence that has been centuries uh, in the in the making that has driven nonprofits into this this way of thinking and that's infected infected I use that word on purpose infected boards and infected funders and what foundation leaders corporate donors like any funding source any individual philanthropists need to understand is that this work really only works if there's long term funding and we need to do the hard work of having those conversations about partnership, about long-term partnership, and about saying, you know, if this is a change that you want to see in the world, this is a tree that you are going to plant that you may never sit under the shade of. And we need to cast that vision to donors and funders to say, your goal here isn't to solve one tiny microcosm. It's to have a system change approach and system change elements we're never going to quote unquote solve the problem, right? But we're going to get closer and closer. I, I talked about it as like an asymptote in math where we get closer and closer to justice. We're never going to get there, but because there's, we're people and we're going to have all of these, you know, messy interpersonal relationships. But the closer that we can get is the goal. And that's a long term play. It's one that's going to outlast our children and our grandchildren. I think I wrote about that at one point. Like, you know, when my daughter is 84, it will be the turn of the new century. And she's going to be facing some of these same issues. Hopefully we'll have a woman president by then. We don't know. And that's a whole different. <laughs> <laughs> but my hope is that the way in which they're thinking about these problems, those mindsets will have at least shifted enough to really focus on kind of the long-term approach to funding things. But really, the, like to your point, the one-year funding and we're only going to fund the new element that you're doing, that's so bankrupt. Yeah, it's terrible bankrupt funding approach because it incentivizes absolutely the wrong behaviors, right? Like we, we shouldn't be in the business of 
new fangled things, we should be thinking about what are the right solutions. And funders need to realize that nonprofits are on the ground. They know best how to address the need that's happening. And, you know, to be honest, I think nonprofits can benefit from some elements of what funders have in terms of knowledge and resources and whatnot and coordination. So the trust element does go both ways, but really focusing on funders saying, this is something that we really care about and we're going to move this strategically forward through a long-term investment in this. And that's why you see things like Mackenzie Scott and Melinda Gates doing strategic philanthropy, right? They're, they're moving big pieces forward in a concerted effort. And then there's the emerging trends in philanthropy, which are the YouTube stars. I can think of a campaign, Mr. Beast, I don't know what his real name is. Millions of followers on YouTube, millions of followers on Twitch. And he started a campaign called Team Trees. And it's $1 or a dollar to plant a tree. And then he started Team C's, $1 to get one pound of trash out of the ocean. And they raised millions and millions of dollars from small dollar donors that were $1, $2, and really encouraging people to understand the cause and to get involved you know, in any way that they can. So I think in terms of that, like philanthropy is definitely changing. And I think that you know we have to look at the foundation perspective, but also the, you know, the individual giving perspective, because to me, I don't know if you see this too. I think the new next generation of donors, they don't have a lot of trust in institutions. They care about the cause. They care about the problem you're solving. They care about the issue. They care about the stories and your annual report your operating budget, your overhead, quote unquote, they don't know that. They just see, okay, is this something that is moving the needle forward? Do I feel like this is something meaningful? Am I excited about this? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, all the social media stuff, I mean, that's totally your wheelhouse. And I don't know that I'm like, I'm certainly not the trendsetter <laughs> on any of, of that stuff or even follow the trends as much as as you would uh, for sure. But I do think what you said is really important for, for listeners to hear, which is the institutional piece is has to become less important. It really has to be about connecting donors with a cause that they already care about and getting out of their way to facilitate that generosity. And that's what I think we as fundraisers do. But I also think the the key component is really thinking through how do we reach people with those stories that help them understand how they can make a difference. And a lot of what I do, like all the speaking that I do, all of the sessions that I do, a total open book, here are all the things that I did. Here's the literal script of what you can do. Because as fundraisers, I believe and anyone in nonprofit is in some way a fundraiser. But what I believe is that we need to be encouraging generosity generally. Because the more people that care about the stuff that's happening to all of us, the better off we all are. And a lot of times nonprofits get in their own way of saying, like, those are my donors and I need to grab as many donors as I can. And it comes back to this hoarding mindset. And Jim Langley uses this analogy of like, some organizations are just grabbing as many apples as they can off the apple tree and others are ramming a bulldozer into the tree to collect as many apples as they can. And what I think nonprofits should be doing is planting orchards. 
all over the place, just planting orchards of people who will become more and more generous to whatever it is, right? Like there's so many, unfortunately, there's so many social, you know, environmental economic problem. Like there's so many things that people should get involved with. And there are too many things to leave up to vicissitudes of of government, especially right now with the divisiveness that we're dealing with that, you know, can move funding from one direction to another like on a daily basis, honestly, that we just need to have people who care and people who roll up their sleeves and say, I will spend my time, I will spend my money, I will dedicate myself, you know, like you do on the school board. Like we're, we're going to be involved because our communities matter that much and we want to get engaged to make a different world for ourselves, for our kids, for, you know, future generations, whatever it is. The next time someone talks to me about donor fatigue, I'm going to give the analogy of planting an orchard. I think that's absolutely beautiful. We shouldn't be ramming the trees with bulldozers and forcing the apples to fall off. We shouldn't be picking the tree dry so that it can't produce apples the next year. And we should be cultivating and growing and nurturing an orchard. That I absolutely love that. I think that's fantastic. Well, we could talk forever. I do have one more question. Just a quote that that you wrote that I love. You wrote, innovation is closer than you think, but your old maps will not help you find it. Kind of reminded me of the Goonies, to be honest, um, when I think of maps. But how do we get rid of these old maps and create new ones? That's a great question. And it really is a deep dive into how do you think about the issues that you're facing and what are the resources available to you? I'm a big fan. Like, if you look at my background, it's this weird alchemy of random things, which some people are like, why does this make sense? And uh, I think it really is about putting very disparate pieces together and seeing, like, how does technology interact with philanthropy, interact with finances, with, you know, all these other pieces? And we are very much conditioned to look at, at one set of blueprints or one one map that has been the map for a hundred years and it's tattered and it's torn and it was written by someone who didn't have the knowledge or insights that we do have today. So I think this is a clarion call for diversity on your boards, diversity in your staff, diversity in what you're reading and what you're listening to and how you're thinking about things and bringing in a whole bunch of different perspectives and saying what conditions need to be right in order for us to move in the direction that we need to go in. A lot of times we're, we're saying that's not how we've already done, uh, how we've done things in the past and that's scary and that won't work. And if we change the mindset again and say, what would need to be true? What would need to be true in order for those things to make sense? Or how can we look at this problem through a different kaleidoscope prison? I know I'm, I'm mixing metaphors now, but it really is redrawing the map from scratch. Take everything that you know, throw it out and say, let's start drawing it a different way. Use those pieces to put the new map together. But the most important thing, Julia, is never assume that the map is finished. Never assume that the map is finished. Because what we've done for decades is say, this is the map. This is the way that we get from point A to point B. And what I feel like we've learned you know, in the last several years is the map is continually changing. So how can we continue learning, continue growing, continue getting new perspectives to iterate both on the journey and in the destination so that we can all do better? What it reminds me of is that episode of The Office where Michael Scott has his GPS on and the GPS actually takes him into a lake 
and he drives into a lake. He like doesn't question the map. He doesn't question the GPS. He drives into an actual lake. <laughs> and I think that that analogy actually, I think that's pretty powerful because a lot of us do that. We say, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way, you know, this is the map. This is the, these are the directions. And then we're driving ourselves into a lake. So I love what you said about that. And then how can people find you? They can, you know, what's your website? Where are you active on social? I know you're on Twitter. Yep. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and I have a pretty unique name. So it's just myname.com. And then the firm's name is endowmentpartners.com. Fantastic. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And Chirian, I will see you at an in-person conference sometime soon. I'm so thrilled. And I'm just so happy to have you on the podcast. And we could talk for hours, so you'll have to come on again. Thanks so much for having me. I love it. And love talking to you. And you're the best. I can't wait to see you. Okay, good luck with all those kids. (laughs) You too. (laughs) Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.